Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rural Spark Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. You know, we often talk about the impacts of outmigration and urbanization on rural communities, but there's a very different type of migration happening right now. It's the reverse, in fact, and it's not going over very well. Many large urban centers have become COVID-19 hotspots, and some city dwellers want to ride out the pandemic at their rural homes, cottages, or maybe in rural rentals, where the spread is usually less prevalent. Many small towns are asking them not to come, sometimes quite forcefully, for fear of bringing the virus with them and overwhelming their local healthcare system and other essential services. So do they have a right to come? Do rural communities have a right to say no? Well, we've invited Ashley Whedon to the podcast today to discuss this pressing issue. She's a PhD student at the University of Guelph with a research focus on rural economic resiliency, and she has some valuable insights to share on this situation. Hello, Ashley. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Well, as good as we can be in, in scary and unsettling times as these, but uh, I do appreciate you making some time to chat with us. You have an area of research that's kind of really relevant to our podcast, of course, and, and to what we're all going through right now. So I wonder if we might start, Ashley, by you just telling us a little bit about what your research is focused on. I'm a PhD candidate in uh, rural studies in the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. And just as sort of the, the title might give away, my research is, is focused on rural development, but more specifically on what I call small eye innovation. So community innovation, processes of innovation, new ways of doing things in rural places. So I'm most focused on this notion of how does, how does place affect what kinds of innovation are happening and how people work together. Because typically we tend to think about geography as a container for things rather than an important part of the process. And we know that what will happen in Nelson, BC will look different than what's happening in Pike Bay, Ontario, or what's happening in, you know, Gander, Newfoundland, just because the places are different. But Mm. we haven't quite managed to work those understandings into public policy. And we tend to have innovation policy or even supportive policy of every kind applied across the country as if place doesn't matter. And so my research is really focused on uh, what I like to call place-based rural innovation and future-oriented public policy. So then how do we bake this into ways to imagine resilient and, and sort of vibrant futures for rural communities? Well, it's a beautiful topic. It's something we're really keen on here. I think our audience is keen on, so, so we're really uh, fortunate to have you with us today. And, mm-hmm. and I think when we talk about, you know, uh, place being so important and developing uh, policies around place, of course, uh, where we are, where we live, and how our communities are structured has huge implications for the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that we're all living through right now. And one of the big issues for rural communities is people leaving cities to go to what they might have their own homes or cottages, chalets, in rural communities, or they might be interested in a rental in a rural community because it looks a little safer. Um, Maybe the pandemic is uh, not as prevalent in some of these communities. Um, But we're hearing reports of, you know, rural communities, even tourist areas that really depend on people coming in for the summer months or the winter for skiing, as it might be, uh, really rolling up the welcome mat and uh, saying, please don't come here. How big of an issue do you think it is that people are, say if we look at North America, fleeing urban areas to go to rural communities during the pandemic? Do you think it's a fairly major migration? Well, it's, it's a little tricky in the mi- to know exactly in terms of concrete data, right, in terms of how many people are doing this. I think probably 
for the best we don't have a, a mass surveillance of people the way that other parts of the world do so that's that's i mm-hmm. actually think that's a good thing that we're not surveilling people that way but but we do see a lot of folks in terms of stories showing up in the news in terms of concerns coming out of rural communities across north america whether it's here or in the united states of massive concerns of people with means so people with more than one property or people who can uh, afford to buy a longer term short term rental kind of thing wanting to find somewhere remote or rural to kind of quote unquote you know ride out the pandemic and and i think this is a this is a number there's a big concern for this in a number of ways first there was a really great quote by Tracy Cotton, who's a, a scholar out of the, the U.S., and she said, wealth is a vector, right? And so we're seeing that in a few kind of ways where um, people who can afford to move around, move around, and we know that viruses don't travel, people travel. And so as those people move around, they tend to bring the risks of exposure of the virus with them. And then the consequences of that are borne out by people who can't afford to move around or who are vulnerable in those places. And those people overwhelmingly tend to be vulnerable or targeted for any number of different reasons, whether that's geography, gender, economic status, racial background, any of those kinds of things. So we tend to have this thing of, of an enacting of, of vulnerabilities onto people. But because viruses don't travel and people travel, every time we as a person go anywhere and interact with anybody, we bring that risk of exposure with us when we go. And so when you're leaving from a major urban environment into a rural or small town or remote region, you're taking all of the things that you have maybe been exposed to and all of your needs to that place. And that puts added pressure on those systems, whether it's from an extra body needing groceries and gas, right? So you're another person in the community. And for for places that have seasonal uh, residences or tourists come, they may be able to handle some of those things in a regular time. But this happened, this this hit, hit early. And so we were having people show up in cottage country in Ontario um, in kind of March, buying $1,500 worth of groceries at a small town grocery store that's already trying to keep up with demand of their own people. And that places huge burden on the system there. But then if someone is to fall ill, then rural healthcare systems and healthcare facilities are under resourced we know this they're chronically under resourced where we're they're kind of working on on funding models and on infrastructure models that often are out of date for their own populations right are, are behind what their own population growth has been and so if you have maybe one icu bed or if you have one at all what happens if if you have now not only the arrival of the pandemic to your community through whatever means but then you now have double your normal population who is at risk of this and as the surge happens which i think we'll see it we're seeing it happen kind of later in rural areas in the united states and and i think we're seeing the same kind of pattern happen here in canada those systems are far more at risk of being overwhelmed than our urban centers particularly when you think of even for for those of us who have lived or grown up rurally that if something really serious happens to you or someone you know they may be initially treated at your local hospital, but then they often get chipped off to an urban one. So here in Ontario, you know, you might be treated in, in Fergus or Kitchener-Waterloo, and, and those are, you know, relatively large hospitals, locally speaking. But if something's really serious, you get sent off to Toronto, right, or to London. So then now you're adding more travel and risk and vectors and, and more strain on the healthcare system because, you know, you've entered into, into it at one point. You now need to be transferred if you can be. 
and we're seeing great like innovation around this happening in rural areas. So, you know, there's a doctor in Perth here in Ontario who found a way to um, make one ventilator serve nine critical care beds. And mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. At the same time, I really would prefer that we not force our rural hospitals into thinking in, in, the, in this sort of field medicine kind of way, right? So there are a number of concerns immediately related to the pandemic, but then there's a lot of these longer term concerns that I think a lot of people are, are worried about as well, which is what happens if people don't come this season? And we have had a lot of advice in recent years aimed at rural communities that has really bumped up tourism as a primary mode of economic development. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see, I think, some of the misguidedness in that of sort of 20, 25 years of of decision-making or or economic development advice that was aimed at supporting the tourism industry as, as the main economic development agent sort of engine for a lot of these areas, which we're seeing right now is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. to a lot of these kinds of shocks. Mm-hmm. And so then in the place of that, how do we encourage people to find ways to support those communities from home or find alternate strategies for supporting the longer term consequences around these things? So there's there's this kind of this this immediate concern of what would happen. And then there's this longer term concern of if rural communities are overwhelmed by, you know, by a surge of cases, that will have huge effects on the workforce at the same time what strategies do we need to be thinking of to help us weather these challenging times knowing that that economy is going to look very different right and we have seen um you know some of the rural communities that are worried about what's happening right now especially tourist areas we see them saying uh come back in the summertime but of course we don't know right now uh whether that's going to be much of an option for a, a tourist season either so there goes that economic impact could be huge to be a little bit of devil's advocate on the people who are fleeing the cities right now to go to rural areas in some of those cases uh, the visitors will actually own property in the rural areas they might own a summer home a seasonal home they might feel that they have every right to be there during the pandemic. They might even feel that they're being responsible by going to a rural community away from where there are urban outbreaks. What are your feelings on that argument? There's a couple things to think about here. And the first question we should be asking ourselves in, in this situation is not, and this applies broadly, whether this is to going to your second property or to how many trips you make to the grocery store or whatever, is not what am I entitled to do but how do my individual actions affect entire communities? Mm -hmm. So this is a time where a lot of things, you know, we're seeing this play out in kind of a real desire for black and white yes and no answers, right? There's so much that we don't know about COVID-19 and I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a rural health scholar. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not in any way equipped to, to provide any sort of insight into anything about the disease. But what I know is kind of is how we work as communities. My background is all in, in public participation and, and getting people involved in decisions that affect their lives. And a really important part of that process is recognizing that how I behave and, and perhaps even in a way that most of us have never experienced in our lives. This is sort of a once in a generation experience to say that my individual actions will have real and potentially devastating consequences for other people. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, you know, what a tremendous call to service, right? That the best thing, and also the tremendous call to service just says, stay home. How else could we possibly provide so much benefit by doing so little? I think is, is such an enormous opportunity to think about 
simply by staying home, you're being, you know, heroic. So in terms of the, the folks that are saying, you know, I pay, I pay pop, property taxes there, I'm entitled to be there. I think that entitlement to being somewhere versus is this a good idea are, are an interesting flip side of different kinds of conversations. Yeah. And then you also have these, there's difference of opinions in those communities. So we've seen, you know, sort of some of the Muskokas in Ontario and some of the communities in, in BC and then certainly around the country say, you know, please don't come. Like really, please, please, please don't come. We've seen some municipalities here in Ontario not order sort of the shut off of water, of sort of water services or essential services to cottage properties to sort of heavily discourage folks from coming. And I know, me personally, uh, we've leased land from uh, Saugeen First Nation up in Bruce County for the better part of 35, 40 years. And we're not going, we won't be up there, but that's all largely because the Saugeen First Nation has said, is enforcing its borders, right? They're sovereign nations, so they, right. they're, they're saying, you know, thou shalt not come, which I totally understand. So in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm you know, I'm walking the walk here. This is a thing yeah. that affects, my, affects me too. Then you have some other communities, you know, I think it was you know, out towards the Kawarthas and, and those kinds of areas that were saying, you know, it's fine, you can come here. And so this is where we're seeing a community by community case. And some of that also has to do with proximity, right? So, you know, a lot of complicated feelings around Prime Minister Trudeau going to Harrington Lake. Well, Harrington Lake, you know, there's a lot of complex issues around him going to that. And none of them are good or bad. It's just that, you know, Harrington Lake is only 25 kilometers from Ottawa. It's, you know, one of the primary residences of, of the, the Premier and his family. But then there's a lot of feelings around, well, if I can't go, then why could he, right? So there's, there's a lot of these complex, really human questions that go into play. And in the absence of hard knowledge on, on COVID-19 and what we should and shouldn't do, we tend to kind of get in this place of, well, what I'm doing is the right thing and what you're doing is the wrong thing. And so, so we're seeing some of that play out as well, right? The, the sort of the fear and the, the self-policing happen. But right. I think that the challenges of this are, are kind of layered, like with everything, right? And, and we don't have, you know, if you listen carefully to our medical um, experts and our chief medical officer of health, they give us out this sort of layered advice to say, you know, it's all in, into, into degrees. And if you want a yes or no answer, the answer is no, right? Like, if, can yeah. I do this? Can I do that? The answer is, if you, if you really need to force this into yeah. a corner, the no. answer is no. And so I think that's, that's where we're seeing a lot of our rural communities say, you know, the danger being, if you're going to go to a seasonal property, then it should be where you're going to be for the next several months. Yes. Wherever you are right now should be wherever you're going to be for the duration of our kind of shelter in place requirements. And in a lot of instances, it's not appropriate for you to be doing that at your cottage because, you know, some of the best advice I heard was like, you know, if you don't get your mail there and your primary care physician is not, you know, reasonably close, that's maybe really not the best place mm -hmm. for you to be during this time. The real problem comes, you know, however, is you know, maybe that's your only residence when you're counting. Maybe you spend your winters in Florida and you spend your summers at your cottage in Ontario. And in, in that case, every community has said, you know, call our municipal offices. We will work with you and we'll figure it out to make sure that you're not, you know, don't have somewhere to be. Right. So there's lots of great human stories around that. And then there's this question around the going back and forth, which I, to me is the most problematic behavior. Yeah. So yeah. folks that are going up for the weekend and coming back and it's like, well, okay, 
that's directly contravening the instructions. Yeah, uh, that's not a gray area. Yeah, there's no gray area for me. There's just, there's tons of gray area and a lot of things, but there yeah, are a lot of things that, that are quite one. clearly off limits. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, and that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I want to pause briefly here to say a word of thanks to our sponsor, ExploreNet, for supporting the Rural Spark discussion. I think we can all agree that rural areas of Canada should have access to the same amazing internet technologies as our biggest cities. And what's so interesting about ExploreNet, their network is bringing 5G-ready tech to rural Canadians even before it gets delivered to urban areas. You can learn more and check out what ExploreNet services are in your area by visiting ExploreNet.com. That's X-P-L-O-R-N-E-T dot com. Um, Ashley, experts do tell us that, you know, this is a good lesson that we, we need to learn from this experience to prepare for the next global crisis and that there will be a next global crisis. Do you feel that we, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of urgent pressures on the world in, in, even before the pandemic, do you think we could see more interest among uh, city dwellers today in, at some point, moving to rural areas as perhaps safer places to be in times of crisis, not just for what might be a pandemic in the future, but maybe even in the face of the big changes that are coming from climate change and other future threats. Yeah, so there's a scholar at the University of Michigan, Gene Hardy, and he's he's been talking recently about climate gentrification, which I thought was a really interesting way to put it, which yeah. is this idea around looking to, exactly as you're saying, folks starting to look at rural areas as areas of, of respite, right, of places that I can escape some of the consequences of these kinds of things, or I can get further away from them. And I find that really interesting because rural and remote regions are every bit as vulnerable, or perhaps even more so, to the immediate and long-term consequences of climate change is anywhere else. So I think some of that, you know, might be this idea of I can I can head in these directions and it'll be fine is maybe a bit naive, but speaks to kind of our, our general feeling of, of I just want, you know, I want to get away from this, which is understandable. Um, you know, like all of this is so deeply, I just, you know, I gotta say all of this is so deeply human. Everything we're experiencing right now, all of the the emotions and the um, the complicated decisions and kind of trying our best and getting it wrong, all of it is is a very part of being a human being. And so I have deep empathy for everybody trying to make, you know, the best possible decisions. And, and for the most part, I believe that that people are, are doing what they think is the right thing. And, and sometimes maybe need to be coached into opening, opening their minds a little bit into like, is it, you know, is it really the right thing to do? Yeah. And have those broader conversations. Again, individual actions, community consequences. So when we talk about, you know, kind of the ongoing relationship between you know rural and urban and and I think that it's never there's never a divide it's I don't see it as a divide right it's always in constant conversation with with each other and this for the the nerdier among your listeners uh, this great geographer Doreen Massey who wrote a lot in the 90s around notions of place and how we think of place and um, one key part of how we think about place is that it's always in conversation with other places right so how we think mm-hmm. about rural how we think about urban is always in in conversation with each other, never, never kind of an either or. One of the interesting parts of this pandemic is that maybe for the first time in a long time, folks in urban environments are getting a bit of a taste for some of the limitations that rural communities have been working around for quite some time around things like broadband, right? So now all of a sudden when you're home, even if you have really good service and you're in an urban dwelling, you're finding out that it's maybe not quite good enough service to run 25 devices at the same time while, you know, two people try to work from home and three kids try to do their school assignments and mm-hmm. that you have to kind of schedule around that. 
and also kind of the limitations on what's available in terms of different services and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I think folks are, are starting to get a sense of some of the ongoing frustrations that rural communities have had to deal with for a very long time. But on the flip side of that is that as more and more of us find that, oh, wait, I can do my job from home. Anybody that was telling me otherwise, for the most part, I, you know, like this isn't everybody, but a lot of labor we're finding out now can be done remotely. And so if it can be done remotely, why am I, you know, in this environment versus another one? The perception of safety is really interesting because um, we know that, you know, rural communities come with their own sets of risks and challenges. And we have, you know, isolation becomes an issue in rural communities. We have, you know, disparities in, in healthcare. We have different kinds of infrastructure. And so if anything, that kind of movement might inspire more investment in rural development in terms of if those people are moving out of urban environments and looking at that as a real mm -hmm. possibility, they're going to want the services and amenities to come with them. And so that may shift a little bit of our conversation around those things. But more importantly, I don't see this as a, as a question around thinking about density or lack thereof being the thing that makes us, quote unquote, safer or better able to take care of each other. What we're really looking at are issues around inequality, right? So even in, in the largest urban centers, it's not the, the surges and the and sort of the epicenters, places like New York versus San Francisco, for example. It's not density, it's inequality and, and issues around who's most vulnerable. And so in cities where you have a, a largely higher general uh, overall wealth, or you have places that have um, kind of been characterized that way. So I'm looking, I'm thinking around, you know, San Francisco's can containment strategies versus New York's and why they've looked so different. And even though they're both very, very dense cities. So I think that, that those are the most interesting questions to me there. And they apply in rural communities or urban communities alike. And we really need to be thinking about those strategies. But I do think, I do think you're right that this raises a ton of interesting questions around what we want the future to look like. You know, the big unknown of how long this will last around what the most, you know, enduring consequences of this period will be. We won't know for quite some time. And, and whether that's, you know, economic, psychological, health-wise, every bit of our systems will be kind of upended a bit by this time, by the by COVID-19. But the really interesting part is is to really question folks to say, you know, when are we going back to normal? Um, right. And by pushing back and saying, well, that normal is going to look, it's never going, to, I don't think it's ever going to be the way it was in January 2020 here in Canada. Wow. I don't think we're, we're going back to that in, in any short order. But we have a real opportunity to think about what we want that to look like. And I think that there's a lot of reason for hope in that because policy decisions that six weeks ago we continually told each other were impossible in terms of supports for the most vulnerable in our community, you know, remote labor, investments in, in our healthcare system, galvanizing industry, all these, all these kinds of things that we kind of told ourselves, we just can't do that. We're doing. And we've done it on the turn of a dime. And yeah. so this is a really interesting opportunity to test our values and figure out how we want to reconfigure things. I see it not entirely as a, as a rural versus urban or people leaving one for another, but what are we going to see in terms of a, either seizing or missing an opportunity to really be, reconfigure the way we think about some of those relationships? 
Yeah, and you know, it, it strikes me that there's such big questions here, and you've articulated a number of them there, Ashley, but big questions for our social scientists across Canada to help us tackle in, in the months and years ahead. And, uh, your focus itself is on future-oriented rural economic resiliency. So I'm wondering, in, in terms of your research, is the pandemic changing how you look at the, this topic? Will it change how rural communities look at, look at and build their own resiliency? I think so. I mean, you know, for context, I should have warned everybody. I finished my bachelor's degree in 2008 and my master's in 2010. And now I was, I was hoping to be finished my PhD over the next year. So generally, whenever I get close to finishing a degree, something, something major shocks the world economy. So I should have, I feel like I should have sent out a warning beacon to the world. But, but I think that for my, so for my own research, this has had a twofold effect. One, feeling very fortunate to be in a position to to ask a lot of the questions that we're asking right now and um, to be kind of already eyeball deep in thinking about how do we frame you know rural futures how do we think about place in terms of being an important part of of innovation and, and future-oriented things how do we you know tailor or or get good evidence into public policy as well as kind of good foresight processes and and so you know kind of already being in those really interesting ambiguous and and sometimes uncomfortable places is sort of good training ground for the circumstances we find ourselves in now but it is retooling some of the questions that myself and a lot of my you know uh, peers and colleagues are asking i know I'm part of a team at the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation who we're kind of rapidly mobilizing our network to think around exactly the questions you ask. How do we how do we mobilize rural researchers and the expertise that we have to provide a rural lens on a lot of these questions that are coming out and to say, well, how is this you know, is it the diff- is it any different in terms of the questions we're asking in rural areas and and if so, what does that look like? As well as how do we tell better stories about rural areas. And, and I like to say, as you might have guessed all the way throughout this, there's a lot of, well, it depends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I get frustrated with with policy or, or with framing that says, you know, things are either all good or all bad. Because it's, you know, communities are just like people that way. There's never all good or all bad. There's just, you know, deep complexity. And we need to get better at, you know, broadly as a society and definitely in our policy cycles and our public institutions, dealing in that ambiguity, right? At, at not kind of doing the oversell job, uh, which we see sometimes happen around like our community is amazing. There's absolutely nothing wrong happening here. Or the undersell job, which is you kind of get into this um, fragility as an identity, right? Which becomes, you know, we're rural, we're remote, we're very at risk um, and an unwillingness to say, to talk about some of the things that may be strengths or things that may be going Mm -hmm. well. So I think that for for my research in terms of the future-oriented stuff, this changes a lot of things. One, none, I think, you know, if we've been listening to epidemiologists, we've been listening to scientists, we would have been waiting for this sort of like, we wait for the, the big one out west on, for in terms of earthquakes. We, I think a lot of people were predicting that uh, a major pandemic would be, you know, would be the next global shaping force that we would face. But at the same time, none of us knew when it was happening. You know, most of us were not thinking about this. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we said, as said earlier, six weeks ago, thoughts about the way we were working with each other were very different. Yeah. Um, so I think that for myself, looking forward is, is exactly, you know, kind of those just, you know, saying a bit earlier around what a tremendous opportunity, if it can be framed as such, and I, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be characterized as, as being, you know, kind of opportunistic or kind of, you know, you know chaos capitalism in terms of looking at this as a, as an opportunity to do these kinds of things, but it's more of a, of a, of a chance to grieve 
things as they once were and to recognize that what we're in right now is a very challenging situation, but that we are very fortunate that unlike previous shocks to our kind of national, subnational, you know, global economies, we have a lot of mechanisms in play that will hopefully allow us to weather those storms a little bit better and that we have this chance to say in everything being kind of torn apart and questioned right now what do we want to put together and how and how do we do that in the best possible way so my own research looking at place-based you know small i think small eye innovation so i'm not i'm not interested in whatever gadget or gidget or particular item comes out of things i'm more interested in than the processes and the relationships and the systems at play the question becomes around what are those systems what do they look like? What could they look like? What things do we need in play to head down those directions? And what lessons can we learn from our previous responses to global crisis? So right now I'm doing a lot of work around investigating not only kind of some of the missed opportunities in our responses to the 2008 and 2010 recessions when it came to infrastructure investments, but how can we look further back to say like to, to FDR and the New Deal and the electrification of rural America as models how we might reconsider what broadband infrastructure looks like and how mm. it's funded. Or maybe this is the opportunity where, where rural communities become our centers of excellence around green infrastructure or sustainable energy. And I think we've seen some of that happen in parts of the world, Northern Scotland being really interesting in terms of their balance between offshore oil as well as tidal energy and wind energy. And so kind of these uh, also in the context of decommissioning nuclear in that part of the world as well. Right? So you have this really interesting transition happening there already. How does this circumstance accelerate that? What's happening now will have you know, major implications for my own, my own doctoral research as we go forward, but certainly will, I think, will change and shift the questions we ask around these kinds of things. I think you'll see a sharpening on, on what I call the so what filter. So the, mm -hmm. um, we're doing this research, so what, you know, is anybody better off? Um, how do we mobilize research so that it's applied and of value to, to communities and to policymakers? So we may see more of a, a more of a return to extension work and, and to how we work in community with each other, which I think rural scholars have, have a long track record of, of engaging in quite well. And then how then do we bake that into public policy and, Despite our best intentions, we often struggle to get evidence into public policy. Right. And right now, a major barrier to some of the ways forward that I hope that we're able to course correct is, you know, we're not collecting detailed enough data about how COVID-19 is affecting individuals, whether that's on gender, on race, on economic stratification, any of those issues we're not going deep enough in our data collection. And this is a historic issue in Canada in terms of we're not, we don't collect deep and detailed enough demographic data in order to actually meaningfully convert that into targeted policy. So how do we course correct some of those things and develop those solutions? And I'm really optimistic about the number of people across public sector, private sector, research institutions who are asking these kinds of questions, right? And mm -hmm. if we blow up all of our assumptions, then we get to kind of start over with some things. And what do we want that to look like? And that's really exciting for a futurist like yeah. me because it puts everything on the table. So I'm, I think that, you know, in one breath, it, everything feels heavy and hard and really, really challenging. And in another breath, we're seeing, you know, rural resilience really shine through in a lot of ways, which is, you know, claiming their own kind of spaces and their destiny and saying, you know, 
you know, please understand how your actions affect us. We'd love to welcome you back when, when it's safe to do so, but mm-hmm. here are the things that you need to hear our stories or, you know, we're hearing about Gray County, you know, redeploying staff into essential services so that, you know, one, they continue to employ those people. Those are still, you know, paychecks circulating in the economy, but they're also doing things that need to be done. And, and you know, what great leadership from a rural community to be able to do so, or whether it's, you know, our shift in manufacturing or a shift in products being developed in, in rural communities to help support these areas. Even N95 masks, you know, the, the only place where the pulp comes from is from Nanaimo, right? In BC. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that, that those are all really important stories to tell around how rural communities are part of the fabric of the way we're going to move forward. And if anything, I think that we'll see a re-emphasis on places outside of our major urban centers as being important parts in how we're going to get through this together as, as a country and as regions. Because we still need a, a safe and stable food supply. We still need energy. We need communities where we're able to keep people safe. We need, you know, all of those kinds of things. And rural communities can be really interesting sites of best practices around those things as well. Right. And it is kind of exciting, like when you say, despite being in a time of grief right now, it is exciting to think that we can kind of rewrite that next chapter, right? Um, yeah. Societies, rural and urban, and and the chapters that follow. And of course, the researchers like you will, will help us see the opportunities and how to seize those opportunities in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you've given us some great things to think about today, Ashley, and, and I thank you for making the time to share your insights with me. This is, as, as we all know, this is changing daily. And as we mm-hmm. start to get some answers, to some of those big questions and maybe see uh, how we can, you know, shape things in the future. I'd like to reconnect with you and see uh, what you're thinking at that time about uh, how we're moving forward in rural Canada. So uh, I hope that you'll be willing to come join us again. Of course. And and of course, um, stay tuned for some stuff coming out of the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation on that front as well. There'll be some things coming out over the coming months. And as we, you know, try to provide our support, we're, you know, a national network of folks working on that, uh, that front. But absolutely, I would, I love to continue the conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of share the things that are bumping around in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, Because I think like all of us, exactly, it's, is this sort of walking that tightrope between recognizing the challenge and the difficulty we're in and, and also striving for those pieces of hope. So I always feel like if we can leave on a hopeful note, then things things can't all be lost. So I look forward to, to more conversations around how things are looking in the coming, you know, coming months and, and going from there. Exactly. Thank you so much, Ashley. And you have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Okay, bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.